I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, The Green Knight. So, Casey, I know it's January, but did we just watch a Christmas movie? Uh, there was lots of green and red. And holly and literal Christmas and twice. A, and a guy who's like Santa Claus, sort of, but wants to behead you. So, yes, of course, we are talking about, from the year 2021... The Green Knight. My favorite movie of 2021. My favorite movie of 2021. (laughs) Written and directed by David Lowry, who also wrote and directed A Ghost Story, The Old Man and the Gun, and the Pete's Dragon remake from 2016. It was weird. That was weird. That was the first movie my my oldest kid saw in a movie theater. The, the Green Knight. No, the Pete's. No, the Pete's Dragon movie. Okay, I was. Which is say, weird. That's a weird thing. I to was going to say it. it'd be a fun experience. Your first time going into the movie theater, you get to see somebody jerked off into a magic belt. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, this is based on the 14th century poem Sir Gawain or Sir Gawain or Sir Gerwin. You're going to hear all three yeah, in this movie. Sure. But Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, one of the better-known Arthurian tales uh, about King Arthur's nephew. So to join us on this epic fantasy journey is a returning guest, friend of the show, and veteran of the late and dearly missed View from the Gutters comic book club podcast, Mr. Tobiah Panchin. Welcome back, Tobiah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. Absolutely. And uh, so, Tobiah, we're going to dive right into this movie, because you seem to be our like official foreign correspondent for epic fantasy at this point. Yeah. So, Tobiah- Ooh, is this epic fantasy? <laughs> I would definitely say this That's is a- epic fantasy, but it's not blockbuster movie popcorn fantasy. That's ooh, that's interesting because I, I I wouldn't classify it as epic fantasy, and I I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation because I did not like this movie as much as you two evidently. Did. Oh, oh great. shit! That's so, perfect. So let, perfectly cast. Okay, <laughs> so let's get really into this right now, Tobiah. If you had to synopsize this movie in a paragraph or two, what is the Green Knight all about? Wow, that. Man, that's a that is a hard question to answer. Um, I mean, can you have spoilers for an eight hundred year old poem? <laughs> um, so, in very very rough detail, the Green Knight is uh, about Sir Gawain, the uh, the nephew of King Arthur, and uh, at a Christmas feast, the Green Knight appears, who is a tester of knights, and he offers to play a game with the knights assembled there to. Uh, give a single blow, which he will then return in equal measure. Um, and if you read into the the details of the lore, this is a trick to entrap Arthur, something to that effect. Uh, but Sir Gawain uh, jumps in and he says, "I'll I'll play this game," and he lops the Green Knight's head off with a single blow. And the Green Knight laughs and picks up his head and says, "I'll meet you in a year at the Green Chapel to give you your blow back." And he rides off, holding his head under his arm. Uh, and Sir Gawain has to go on a quest a year later to meet the Green Knight and to meet his fate. And he has a series of encounters and little adventures along the way. Uh, and eventually he does meet 
the Green Knight. And depending on the version of the story, something different might happen in that encounter. Yeah. So is that the 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 thing you're skipping off the track a little bit with this movie on is that it does take some serious liberties with the original poem? Oh no, not at all actually. I I think it's incredibly interesting cuz as we've discussed many times and I think has been discussed broadly many times, we have media today like superheroes where we're constantly reinventing them and doing different renditions of them with slight differences between the characters. And there are some people who get really upset about this and they're like, oh, that's not canon. That's not canon. That's not how it really happened. That's not the true version of the story. When we were doing the exact same thing with King Arthur stories for literally hundreds upon hundreds of years. That's true. I mean, uh, the relationship of the Holy Grail didn't come out till like the 12th century. Yeah, that's all later uh, editions, and so is this one. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are so many different versions of King Arthur. Whether you're looking at uh, Thomas Mallory or um, uh, the the death of Arthur and Spencer, Spencer's the Fairy Queen, which is dealing with a lot of the same characters and a lot of the same material, but is a very different story. People have been reinterpreting King Arthur for centuries. And I'm fine with that, just like I'm fine with all of the different versions of superheroes. I think that you really have to consider a a piece of work as largely a standalone and then only really look at it in terms of canon for contrast. What did they choose to do differently and how does that affect the interpretation of the story? That's that's not what I didn't like about this movie. Oh, wow. So I, and again, Casey and I have already kind of spoiled this part of it, but I love this movie. And I think it's just how fucking weird it is, is a big part of it. And I have kind of found that the sort of literal interpretations and superheroes in particular, but any kind of media is such a big selling point for blockbusters over the last 10, 20 years that this is, Oh my God, we're taking stuff that we never thought we would ever see before. And we're putting on the screens exactly the way you recognize it. And I think I've gotten diminishing returns with it over the probably at least the last five years. And at this point, weird goes a long way with me that I want to see something strange and odd and, has a level of ambiguity, which is something this movie has plenty of. Like, it ends on a very strange, unknown point. It ends on a question mark, practically, and kind of relies on the audience to have to come up with their own ter- interpretation yeah. of what happens next. And I think that the... And for me, not only is it that I've, I've decided that it is uh, that the movies that I like best are the kind that, sets a, that set a mood. And not everyone responds to moody sort of setting type movies like I do so I can appreciate that this also has the uh also has the thing that is so glorious in visual storytelling where there's probably a scene where there's exposition where there's real actual exposition and that's the scene where the green knight delivers the challenge and that's where the where you where the audience has to download like these are the mechanics of Sir Gawain's quest he's going to have this fight He's going to get back what he gave one year later at the Green Chapel. Done. And now there's he's talks with people by the rest of it. But almost almost every scenario, maybe with the exception of like when he meets people for the first time, you're seeing what's happening. You're seeing what's happening to him. You're not being told what's happening to him. And the fact that the movie allows you, the audience to 
be smart and not have everything explained. And also, as you said, Mike, at the end of the story, people given the idea of does he get his head taken off or doesn't he? Did does, Is his restraint at taking off the belt uh, enough for him to pass the test to be brave? Or is he going to be a headless guy? And that's the end of his story. I love the idea that the movie is smart enough and respects you enough to not tell you the answer. Yeah, and I think I think that's where I fall down with this story. And mm. I I appreciate this that kind of sto- uh, storytelling where a movie doesn't necessarily tell you everything. It shows you things and it asks for you to interpret them. I think where this movie lost me is that so much of it is obscure. It's not that they're showing you What's happening is that they're showing you certain things and then saying, what do you think that this means? Hmm. And that's the part where I I really kind of lose it, because as I was preparing for this episode, I was doing a lot of reading of other people's interpretations of the original poem. Right. And the changes that the director made for this version. And that really contributed to my understanding of what happened in the film that made me like it more. But walking away from my own viewing of it, I'm like, I really don't understand what this is because there were so many things that I missed. Like the fact that the voice of the Fox is his mother's voice. Yeah. Right. Which and I, that which his I think mother was an, is uh, Morgan Le Fay. Yes. I, I think that is that the idea is that there are, there are elements that persist from the original story and there are elements that have been changed and I think, like, for example, in the original story, the Lord, who's Joel Edgerton, is the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. They're one and the same character. Yep. And uh, the Fox is instead a page. He's uh, like a servant he's, of the he's, Lord. Yeah, he's, a, he's a serf of that Lord who's sort of doing that last thing of, you know. Giving you the last chance this is, to yeah, turn this around. Yeah, this is your chance to turn around. Um, there are, I, I think, the Essel, the, the whore, and Was the she dual- or is she just a peasant who hung out at a brothel? I like the ambiguity of <laughs> sure, it. Sure, it could be. But also the idea that her being basically in a dual role with the lady of yeah. the manor also. Like, there are so many things of which he is, and I would th- think it's the most important change, which I, I watched the documentary of the director, and he said that his biggest change was making Gawain inexperienced. Yeah. And that made it so the character has a bigger arc, right? Because the story really is about a guy who doesn't know how to be good. He doesn't know how to be honorable. He starts off basically being this whelp who has everything handed to him. He's basically, as long as doesn't look like King Arthur's going to have any kids, he's basically next in line to the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't, he can just skip through life as he, cause he's a, he's a Chet Hanks, you know, he can just. Yeah, he is a Chet Hanks. You know what? It really hit me watching it this last time. He reminds me of Dudley Moore's character in Arthur. Oh yeah. I where he's not a bad person. It's not like he's the sort of person that pulls the wings off of flies or anything. He's not cruel. No. Not overtly, but he can be callous and selfish and cowardly. And that because he's born into this kind of privileged cocoon because of who his uncle is. There is this sense of, oh, because you were born around greatness, you will be great one day. And he says at the beginning, as he wakes up in a brothel, (laughs) having water splashed on his face on Christmas morning, um, 
they ask him if he's a knight and he says like what and they go are you a knight and he's like not you know not yet and he's like well you better hurry up he says i've got time i've got lots of time right and right. this is a story about a guy who lives like that suddenly having a clock over his head that he has this much time to be a knight he makes a really dumb decision so in a lot of ways this is about a fail son you know nephew you know in the shadow of the round table suddenly forced to buy his loved ones and because it seems to be his mother orchestrating all of this uh to fucking grow up yeah that he's going to need to make a decision and going to need to make sacrifices and to be brave for the first time because he thinks he can live in this sort of like man-child stasis forever that yeah i'm gonna get out of this eventually at some vague point in the future but he's in no hurry to and it really kind of is interesting is that the thing that seems to motivate him the most in this movie is shame. Yeah. That he gets called to, you know, basically a Christmas dinner sort of feast. And King Arthur brings him to sit by him and Guinevere. And what I kind of like about this interpretation of King Arthur and Camelot is there really is, like you mentioned, there's a sense of it's older, that all of those great tales that you've heard about were in the past. That... Camelot has seen better days that they make up both Arthur and Guinevere to look kind of gaunt and old and maybe even a little sickly. Yeah. Uh, the Knights of the Round Table are all middle-aged men with beards and some of them have gray hair. And he's the young person in the room and he's a fuck up. So he's, in a lot of ways, he's part of the decline of this world. And there's this sort of expectation now that it's like, well, he's probably going to be king one day. He gets called up, and when this challenge happens, it's his opportunity, now that the spotlight is on him, to be the big man, and he doesn't fucking think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about what you said, because it, it's kind of tangential to my big takeaway from the film, which is that, I mean, the entire thing is structured as a subversion or a frustration of expectations. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got... Sir Gawain, you know, Gawain the good, Gawain the noble, like he's supposed to be the most pious of all the knights, the most honorable. And he is the exact opposite of that in this film. Mm -hmm. And he's a coward. Yeah. I mean, above and besides that, every encounter that he has is kind of a frustration of expectations. You know, he's not noble. He's not successful. You know, the the first thing that he encounters are the thieves who rob him of the axe and his horse and his magic girdle and leave him tied up for dead in the woods. Mm -hmm. He meets the ghost woman and demands payment for which he's immediately rebuked. And all that he gets out of that encounter is the axe back, which is the thing that will be used to kill him at the end of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, he can't escape. He spends a night in a cold cave where he like struggles to set a fire. He eats mushrooms that make him sick. He asks the giants to carry him and they walk away. (laughs) He seeks refuge in a house and is greeted with seduction and manipulation and them trying to further break him of his honor. And at the end of the film, he depending on how you want to interpret it, gets his head chopped off. There, yeah. there is nothing good or noble that happens in this movie. 
I would say except for that last moment. That Except for that moment. That yeah. moment is the one that ultimately I think really matters. And it's a question ultimately of, but with a guy like that who thinks that he can just be good at the last minute, is that enough? And you don't know. Is it all been a test to this moment? Because remember, this was all orchestrated by his mother, who, again, you mentioned is sort of implied to be Morgan Le Fay, but they never actually say King Arthur or Camelot no. or Morgan Le Fay. Nope. He's just the king, his mother, the castle. And she still, despite all of this, this is kind of her her kind of conspiracy to force him to grow up, but she still gives him a game genie. She's still his mom. <laughs> she gives him a belt that will protect him against all harm. And in a lot of ways, it makes the fact that he would face this person with an invincibility potion it undoes anything that he could have learned from that. And I think King Arthur says to him when he meets him like a year later that he gets this challenge. He chops off the head of the Green Knight. By the way, the Green Knight played by Ralph Innocent is fucking amazing yeah, looking yeah. Oh, in so this good. movie. I thought at first that it was CGI. And then later I only realized that they had just put him under this mountain of practical makeup and... Uh, it he looks, looks like a pagan god. Oh, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. He's made out of wood, and he has this armor that looks like it's been left out to the elements all this time. And when he moves, there's this creak and crack, and it sounds like he's full of dirt and moss. He kind of looks like, you know, the green man image you see on a lot of, like, Wiccan artwork. Mm -hmm. And that axe that he has... Just the... By the way, the just the sound design of this movie is fucking spectacular. Um... When he picks it up, it always sounds like it weighs a thousand pounds, <laughs> and it looks like it's centuries old. Right, right. It well, looks like I it mean, has been excavated. The the everything of design of this movie is brilliant, just in how deeply uncomfortable it is throughout the entire thing. You know, like, like you were saying before, you know, Arthur and Guinevere look like they're half dead. Camelot mm -hmm. is this dark, dirty, shabby place. When he rides out of Camelot, all the lands surrounding the castle are just like these barren scrublands. There's mm -hmm. no people around. He passes tumbled down ruins like there used to be something here and there isn't anymore. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. the first person that he ever encounters is on a battlefield littered with corpses. <laughs> yes. You know, this is this is a, a land that is filled with death and we're constantly given these very deeply dis uh, disquieting shots that are held for way too long and the sound design that's just made to put you on edge even the incredibly satisfying heaviness of that axe is still like you can palpably feel it like the axe is coming down on your own head every time that thing is on screen yeah oh. everything about this film is designed to really put you on edge it, yeah. it, I think that it's also sort of fascinating, just so this one doesn't escape my mind. Um, so his first encounter is with the thief, who's played by uh, cinema's most punchable face, Barry Keegan. Oh, um, who is brilliant in The Eternals. He, oh, he's he's a great actor. And he has this unnerving quality about him that reminds me of Peter Stormare in Fargo, <laughs> where yes. it's this vibe of, I don't know where you're from, but you will kill me in my sleep. Right. Um, but they, but Peter, but uh, the, the I, I do have Keegan's, to say though, he's not ahead. the most punchable face in cinema right now. Nope, you're right. Probably not. I'll concede that. <laughs> it's it's uh, the guy 
I can't, I don't know the actor's name off the top of my head, but he was the bad guy in the old guard. His eyes are just too close together. Wait, I'm sorry. is that, <laughs> wait, wait, is that the kid who played Dudley on this Harry Potter movies all grown up? Dudley, no, the, I don't the, think the, that that's the him. overweight cousin. Is he doomed to be punchable? I mean, that's a good job if you can get it no, in media. You're, you know, you know what the guy I'm talking about, right? Dudley, yeah. Harry Potter's cousin, who's overweight and he's annoying and he's a bad person. Oh, and he you also know what? is that the, might he's be the, the same guy. He's the guy who doesn't have any arms and legs in Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, he's who, great in that. Who Liam Neeson spoilers throws in the river when he finds a suitable replacement from an artistic standpoint this movie does feel a bit like the the ballad of buster scruggs now that you mention it (laughs) where so much of it feels damp and cold and it feels like you are gonna die in this land if you don't find shelter no i mean this is the thing that i love about it i love about the the presentation is they're trying there's a through line to this movie about the color green obviously that you see you see the uh, the color green sort of cast as a shade through like um, Gawain's beard at at points, and you see green light uh, come through places. You're, there's a green tint, and there's the, the it's sort of made plain when um, the lady at the manor near the in the last third of the movie has this soliloquy, which, which is really amazing, which is sort of about green is is ever present. Um, green is the thing that you try to scrub out of the cobblestones when it grows. Um, but in the end, your body will be covered in green. Your tombstone will be covered in green, and there's nothing you can do about it. The idea of the inevitability of death and sort of the the nature of all of yourself, all of your deeds and everything you've done will eventually just be washed over and forgotten about. It'll be rubbed out as sort of the a great counterpoint to um Gawain's quest, right? Mm-hmm. Because because what is his what is his thing? His thing is, oh, I've lived in the shadow of these people whose lives will live on hundreds of years after they're dead because their deeds are sung in songs. Mm-hmm. And I have no songs to tell. And the idea of his his quest, not only to be an honor and to live up to this, but the fact that he doesn't have green wash over his life and he becomes just like every person on that battlefield is part of his struggle. But he does he clearly does not know how to make that happen. And he has to fail over and over again to make it happen. Yeah, that's what I kind of like is watching an actor throw themselves into a character that could so easily be detestable. And I think this is the power of Dev Patel in this role is that not just because he's an incredibly handsome guy with giant puppy dog eyes and those eyes, you can tell even with the character, have let this guy get away with shit for a very long time because he's handsome and charming. (laughs) But he is also just a shit. He's in a relationship with a peasant woman who loves him, doesn't love the fact that he's the king's nephew, doesn't love his money, loves him. Like this is the. Uh, Essel is the best thing in his life. Yep, yep. And there's this doom that hangs over their relationship that they both feel. And she has the guts to acknowledge that doom, and he doesn't. She she basically, as he's going out on his quest, doesn't want him to go and says, like, this is how silly men perish. And he says, or how brave men become great. And she's like, why do you need greatness? Is goodness not enough? Mm-hmm. That she really loves him as he is, that his mother wants him to be this thing, his uncle wants him to be this thing. She loves him as he is, but at the same time, all of these people who love him want him to be better. And I think what I love about Dev Patel is that 
he makes you want him to be better too. Yeah. That you don't just want to see him get eaten by something. <laughs> that you like, come on, dude, I want better from you. What are you doing? What are you fucking doing? Why are you asking for payment to save that, that ghost woman's head from that pond? Why are you being a piece of shit right now? Why are you being a coward? Be better than this. You want him to, to sort of live up to that. And he reminds me a lot of ways of James Callis as uh, Gaius Baltar in oh, Battlestar yeah. Galactica. I can see that. Where there's this fear that hangs. But but Essel is willing to acknowledge that she's a common person and he's a noble and she wants to be his lady. She asks him, is this basically, is this going anywhere? And uh, not because she wants his money. That's his answer is, Oh, you'll have more money than any ladies. Like I have your money. I just want to sit by you and I want your hands and your heart yeah. and your ear and your ear. And I want to be part of your life and acknowledged. And she gets these little moments where He's riding to mass and all the peasants are on foot and so is she. And he rides up on a horse and he lets her ride with him. And it seems like those are the little moments in their relationship that give her hope. But even he kind of knows he's stringing her along because he's so fucking cowardly that he would be ashamed to acknowledge her publicly to his mother or to his uncle. And it seems like, and even later on when the lady also played by Alicia Vikander asks about that little bell token that she gave him, he doesn't acknowledge it. He, even when she's not there, even when the person that she is in her social standing isn't even a topic, he can't fucking own it. And you just want him to be better than that. Yeah. And that, I think, is ultimately the cowardice that pisses me off about him the most. <laughs> but the fact that someone like her, who's clearly kind, loves him, says, you know, he can't be all bad. <laughs> yeah, there, there's... There's a lot of levels of commentary that are really going on in this movie. I mean, there's the there's what you were describing, like this entire social layer of what are the expectations that society puts upon him? What are the expectations that we as the audience are putting upon him? And what does it say about us that even as he is obviously such a piece of shit, that we still hold out this hope even to the last moments of the movie that he can rise up and be better than where he has been taken by his upbringing, by his role in his society in everything that's led up to that moment. Why do we care about this guy at all? Yeah. Power of Dev Patel, man. Right. I I kept, (laughs) and uh, we, we, we can belabor this point probably for another hour, but I kept thinking of, um, inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers movie, and uh, what's his face playing the main character, uh, Lewin Davis, who's sort of a scum. What's the guy? What's Poe Dameron's name? I forget this. Guy. Oh, you're talking about. Oh, now I now I can't. Get... What is the name of the guy who plays Poe Dameron? He's in everything, and he's great. Oscar, Oscar Isaac. Isaac. Yes. So Oscar Isaac, in a pretty pretty one of his first big roles, the lead role uh, in this Coen Brothers movie. And Lewin Davis is despicable. He's this character who is a folk singer in New York and sort of the very beginning of the sort of pre-Bob Dylan sort of times. And he's a character that in every instance, in every instance, does something despicable, makes a, ter- a choice that if it isn't shown as terrible, then it's terrible later. He shuts everyone in his life out, um, constantly undermines himself, but... 
that movie gives you these windows into him is that when you hear him play there it's beautiful when you hear him play you realize like oh this is this this is this guy's soul right you could you see who he is in those moments when he decides to pick up the guitar and start singing and my the the parallel with um Gawain is interesting because you don't get to see him to see him do that at all you never get the moment of of where he gets to be the brave knight and be totally virtuous it's always he had to be scammed into doing it he had to be shamed into doing it he had to be convinced by someone else even in the moment where he leaps up he is handed excalibur i can't tell you how much i loved that moment that is done done without words at all um the green knight has come gawain said i'll take the challenge and i need a sword i need a sword and none of the other knights they all hesitate wanna... all the knights of the round hesitate and king arthur who is weak he can barely pick it up hands him his sword and there's a moment of recognition on gawain's face of of saying like this sword was was the sword it's the ur sword you know um and there's a moment where he you know he takes the sword he's ready for battle he's clearly scared out of his fucking mind mm-hmm. you know because of how crazy this but guy they're is all watching him um and even in that moment he fails at being noble and virtuous because he makes a stupid decision. Yeah, because his fucking <laughs> ego and shame and the fear that these people will laugh at him, all these legends, as he calls them, people who have stories where he doesn't, because all he does is pour booze in his face and fuck women <laughs> and get fights in the streets and probably has to be carried out. And that's what people know him as. That's probably why the other knights don't want to give him a sword. Yeah. Because I don't want that fucking <laughs> douchebag nephew. It's like, you know, it's like one of the Trump boys. <laughs> It's it's Hunter Biden, it's Chet Hanks, it's it's that son of Christopher Walken's character in Batman Returns. It's it's every guy like that, and we all know that guy, the boss's son. And he I don't want him to fuck this up. And I think maybe the, the I, Green Knight gives him an opening yeah. to be noble. Yes. More than anything. It's like the right answer, and you just sort of sense it as you dub the Sir Green Knight. You give him a light tap because he's not going to fight you. Right. He sets his axe down. And I love that fucking axe. Again, sounds like it weighs as much as the world and the moss start kind of growing up underneath it and mm-hmm. the cobblestones. Oh, and he gets so angry because he feels like he's being made fun of in that moment. He, and he turns his head to the side and exposes his neck and he chops it off, and it's like, what the fuck are you doing? But he gets applause there, though. Yeah. So that's the thing. That is the th- that is the part of thing I think that makes it even more complicated for him is he cuts the head off, and then when he's asked by Essel later, did you feel afraid? He said, of course not. Like he's still pretending because he still believes that he did the most noble thing that he could have in that. But of course, he didn't think no. before doing it. <laughs> no, his like fucking ego and his <laughs> sense of shame and potential embarrassment. And I also wonder because the rules of the game are laid out that in, yeah. in one year hence. On Christmas Day, you will come to the Green Chapel and I will return the blow. It seems right there. Like, is that why they applauded him? Because they were like, did that guy just fucking kill himself? <laughs> is that is that why they applaud? Because they understand the consequences of this game and he didn't think. Because That's why they didn't volunteer. So I, the thing that I'm thinking about moving past, like, the, the frustration of the Gawain character um, I maybe I feel like the thing that's missing here, and Tobiah, help me out here, um, is 
why we want to go along with Gawain and why we keep giving him chances, I think, is because the journey gets stranger and more mythical and more interesting as it goes along. And I think give me some sense of how correct that interpretation is based on that this is supposed to be a sort of an epic poem style story. Well, I I think that you're definitely on the right page. I mean, this is our expectation going into this is that this is going to be the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. You know, Gawain is coded as the hero from like his cloak, this, this yellow cloak that makes him stand out from everything else. And he's the hero of the story. And he's this, you know, kind of fresh faced kid. He doesn't know what he's doing. He messes up. He has to go on a quest of redemption. And we think, okay, you know, this is where he's going to learn all these lessons. He's going to stumble and fall, but he's going to figure out how to do the right thing. And he's going to come out of this as the noble knight of legend. And that's not the story that we get. Yeah. And I think maybe the, the, for me, the, the, what, what you're, I'm willing to set aside for is, um, just why you know I, you know I watched it, I think it was the fourth time that I saw it when I watched it yesterday. The world that he lives in is sort sort of partially recognizable from people who just know fantasy tropes, you know. Um, and the world there is other parts of the world that are very weird and mysterious and totally unexplained. Yeah, t- totally. Yeah, it, it in in ways that you think like, oh, this was genius. There are par- parts of this exploration of uh taking an epic legend and setting it at this time when the world was very different and maybe the world maybe things like giants that are 200 feet tall really actually did exist and it is fascinating how these things that you expect that are pretty rote and ordinary like being accosted by highwaymen <laughs> that seems like a common occurrence but then a headless ghost you know for example like i'd love the idea that there that it's these this con- contiguity of weird things that happen on his travels that s- he thinks are strange, of course, but they're just part of his world. <laughs> yeah, but I love that it's unnerving that yeah. witchcraft is commonplace in this world. Oh, he says he believes in witchcraft. He believes in witchcraft. He's seen too much. But that I this is something I just generally, as a personal taste, like in fantasy. And when it's done really well, there should be an element of horror to it. That yeah. you're watching the universe break and that the rules aren't applying now in front of you. And that should be scary. That magic, I prefer not having necessarily an easy explanation. And you just turn into a gibbering idiot because something happened in front of you that shouldn't work. Like, you know, going diving down into the pond, finding this skull. And when he walks back into the house, the ghost is gone. But her body is now laid out headless on on the bed as a skeleton he looks down and it's just her severed head and not the skull (laughs) and he freaks the fuck out and drops it and it's like that's exactly what you would do and i think it's made scarier because he isn't sir lancelot he isn't you know luke skywalker even he's not this great brave hero he's not steve rogers that he's kind of a fuck up and he makes a lot of decisions that and this is the weird part this is why i think a lot of audiences um, when you get to a character like Gaius Baltar or Father Gabriel on The Walking Dead, get angry mm-hmm. because they see somebody acting in a situation, not like an action hero, but maybe a little closer to how they're afraid they might act. And there's a shame in it. 
or or even uh, to brought up what you had before about the an idea of a horror element. Maybe he acts more like a dumb character in a horror movie because in in horror movies the way mistakes and stupidity is coded is well you're you you die now you deserve like, to die yeah you make really stupid mistakes and you know what buddy that's what you get <laughs> but i would act that stupid i mean I, I would i don't i don't know that i would necessarily call it horror it's akin to horror it's close to horror but it's not necessarily horrific it's not frightening it's something transcendent it's something from outside of our material reality that we can't quite grasp. You know, you look at it and you don't quite see it as what it is because it isn't anything that our brain understands. It's not a part of our universe and yet we're still seeing it. And that can be intensely disturbing and it can be incredibly revelatory, but it's not necessarily horrifying and i'm thinking specifically here in terms of something like like awe? the cthulhu mythos yeah that's like exactly what hp lovecraft constantly takes you up to this point of seeing something just incomprehensibly weird so much so that it drives one insane because you realize that the rules of reality as we understand them are a fiction yeah. and he doesn't show you what it is he doesn't tell you what it is he just Describe somebody else having seen it and the effects that it has on them. And I think that that's profoundly disappointing to a lot of people. I think it's somewhat disappointing to me personally um, because people like things that they can understand. You know, you talk about a system of magic or, you know, types of fantastic creatures, you know, dragons and unicorns and elves. And they want these things to be one thing in particular, something which can be systematized and understood and made to be a part of our reality. And to a degree that can be satisfying, but I think that there's a much higher level of satisfaction when you see something that defies categorization and makes you go, that just doesn't make any goddamn sense. And my brain doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah. it It's like, you feel vulnerable to it in a way that you don't because you don't know how to act because it's not responding. If, if there's something that's easily categorized, as you say, I can make myself rules on how to interact with it. But if that's off the table, um, I just want to run away because I can't trust it to not kill me. And then the world in this movie feels so dangerous, right? Even just the elements, but these creatures that live in it that don't seem to, follow these sorts of rules and he's not a hero in the sense that he's going to go in there with a sword which he loses, he loses almost, yes right away <laughs> right away he never gets it back <laughs> and the axe is mostly a burden for him but even at the end and again the fox being sort of his mother watching him and when in, she's not watching him through the fox maybe the blindfolded woman in the lord's castle for sure but even at the very end he still is going through with this and maybe he's still thinking the same attitude of, yeah, but that's in the future. That's in the future. It won't catch up with me. I'm still a long ways away. And that maybe just as him becoming a knight is something that will just like, you know, there's A, there's this like <coughs> thing in the middle, and then there's B, <laughs> and then B, I'm a knight. And this one, it's just like, I'm going to walk out of there somehow. And I kind of like the ambiguity of the ending because it's this attitude of, well, 
I became a better person right at the end. Doesn't that count? Do I not have to follow through on my obligations? Do I not have consequences to my actions because I win the, you know, the the best conduct award? <laughs> and I don't know. It could just be a joke at the end because it's this moment of genuine the, the Green Knight looks at him actually impressed, not in the fake way, not in the applause way. He has no audience for this. This is the time he has to be brave, and there's nobody here but him, the, the Green Knight, and the axe. And he takes off his magic belt. He intentionally takes off his magic belt. Well, we should talk about what precedes the magic belt, because that's probably the most important element of the entire movie. So the it, you kind of get an A-B situation with the narrative, right? You get a what you assume is some kind of a hallucination or a vision that he has of himself uh, running away. Um, Because the one thing that he is good at doing is just shirking the responsibility that he has. And so he runs, he runs away and you have this extended sequence where he makes his way home. He pretends like he was the one who killed the green, you know, he, he slipped away. Um, King Arthur dies. He gets, you know, he becomes the king um, he has a child with Essel that is taken away. He gets married to uh, someone, some foreign king's daughter, um, and then it all ends in disaster. Um, yeah, you see the kingdom fall apart yes. under him. You see his people, one person throws shit at him. <laughs> a very King Joffrey style. <laughs> um, you see the kingdom collapse. You see people at the doors banging. You see his family abandon him until he's finally just sitting there alone with like the saddest Keanu on a bench face <laughs> that you could have. I mean... <laughs> He is just fucking ruined, and he reaches down and pulls off the belt that he has kept on through this entire flashback sequence, and in that moment, his head just rolls off. He just wants to fucking die, and you realize it's one of those, this is what could happen if he did run away. This is what living a life uh, with dishonor, this is what being that selfish, cowardly piece of shit would lead him to, and he's back in in the green chapel on his knees. And I kind of love that because it's the ultimate story of, wow, he's really going to piss you off. Now you really (laughs) want to see him at his worst. This is him at his worst. You see him throw the one person who really loves him as he is away. And he just becomes garbage. And even that child he steals from her, he loses in war. Yeah. And, and the, and of course you, that ends, you get his face, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure if we're ready to stop talking about the movie, but I mean, I, what I what I think is we've been circling about the end is, yes, it's ambiguous, but there's this exchange where he removes the belt and the Green Knight says, well done, brave knight. And he gives him kind of this kindly Santa Claus like expression on his face, like, I'm proud of you for doing what you, what you've done. And then the movie ends. And, and then he says, you're now. Yeah. Off oh, with your head. Yeah, off with your head. So it, right, with a little but, smile. But the movie the movie does end because the important thing has already happened. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like the is Deckard a replicant thing. The right. answer doesn't matter. The question answer the the question, of course, is always, yes, replicants are people in this one. Yes, he finally made the right choice. But now we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And does he deserve to get away? Yeah, I mean, after it, all of that, that's it, a question too. It and it doesn't t- to me the yeah, just like the replicant thing, it's the fact that the question is there for you to think about it afterwards is what makes it special, not that you could log on to Wikipedia and find out the answer, which I think in the original poem he gives him like a 
like a churlish like oh i'm gonna scratch you just a little bit and then you're on your way like as as is you fulfilled your obligation isn't that also what the god from american gods did the one that peter stormare played the the god who killed people with a hammer and he made a bet with the main character and then at the end he sort of playfully took a tiny hammer and hit him on the head instead of braining him i feel like this is part of i feel like this is an element in in uh, sort of mythology that happens of someone who ends up following through doesn't suffer the actual uh, consequences be they're be rewarded by having sort of this symbolic this symbolic stand-in for it because i think in the original epic poem i think he's he gets scratched on the shoulder or something mm -hmm. and is being like you did it good for you good job yeah um but that's obviously not what this not this story not this version of the story is saying well we well we don't necessarily know that right because he does draw his finger across gawain's neck was that his blow yeah 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 and it's ambiguous but Again, I don't think that it necessarily matters whether he lives or dies after that moment because he did the one thing that he needed to do, which he he took off the belt and he said, I'm going to do the honorable thing for once in my life <laughs> and actually stand up and accept the consequences of my actions. Yeah. And after that, nothing matters. That, that's kind of you see this full circle at the beginning when he wakes up in the brothel and Essel wants to go to Christmas mass and he just collapses on the ground and he just says, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And at the end, it is him literally on his ground. You know, at first he flinches and the knight's just like, why do you flinch? When our positions were reversed, did I show fear? And finally, when he pulls off the belt, he just goes, I'm ready. And you see it in his eyes that he's actually for the first time facing it, that he's scared, but he's actually fighting through it. Mm -hmm. And... He actually says, I'm ready now. Um, and I kind of love that. And I'm just, my God, Dev Patel, you're great. <laughs> and Ralph Edison's voice is like a special effect. Right. right. How is he not doing every <laughs> audiobook ever? I, there are other elements that I think, I mean, I just want to go through and talk about the things that I thought were were particularly interesting. And I, I have not read the original. So I, of course, some of them are, are inventions for this. One is so he, he, in sort of the penultimate scene, he's at the manor. He's sort of stumbled at the almost at the verge of collapse, and he's found a friendly house. Um, and there's a lord and a lady, and the lord goes hunting, and the lady is there, and so she's testing his virtue of not spoiling another man, not breaking a, a woman to break the covenant with her husband, right? To, to seduce her, or rather, fending off her seduction. Um, she takes him into her library and shows all of these books. And I, what I love about the the sort of sly commentary of this character is he asks, have you read all these books? And she's like, I've read them all. Yes, I've written some. I've even changed some that I thought needed improvement. And I was like, that's that's great. I love that. And then she tr takes his portrait and she does it. She has the camera obscura. She has basically, you know, the, the, what, would, what we would call now a camera. It's a little pinhole of light. Um, across a surface that responds to, to to light and she takes his portrait like an old camera obscura from the 19th century would have been so it's kind of this weird anachronism not anachronism but whatever it is an anachronism no, it is um, of where somehow that kind of technology would be available to her but it's one of these other elements of other weirdness where you're just like that shouldn't exist but it's you one know? of two portraits that he has painted of him right 
in his life in this movie. And the other one is right after he does the challenge and everyone's buying him beers and he spends a year just fucking around. He has this portrait where he's got the Captain Morgan pose. <laughs> yes. And it's a, this big heroic thing that he probably hangs up going, yeah, I'm a badass. Everyone's buying me beers now. And this portrait is actually fairly accurate because it's dark and he looks fucking terrified. Yeah. Yeah. And you notice and at it, the end in his in the vision in the vision, it's right behind his throne. Yeah. 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 Um, I just I those little elements I love, and I think the thing that I really want to talk about and I want to actually ask Tobiah, because clearly Tobiah was not as enthralled by this experience as we were. Um, I try not to like read or listen to other people talking about movies that I really like, because I think they end up just destroying my my own experience of them. But I think the Con- the consensus about this movie was that there were a lot of people that were saying like, oh, David, they're just sort of dismissing David Lowry. This is highfalutin garbage. This sort of like lots of style, no substance sort of idea. And I concede that a lot of people could take a look at this that have been weaned on, you know, beginning, middle end, Campbell's journey, Marvel garbage, how this can just t- fall totally flat from because it's not an action movie. Right. And I'm wondering, Tobias, as someone who was not so as as enthralled with this movie as we were, what's your takeaway in terms of just the how the quality of it as a piece of entertainment, as a story, um, and whether or not its pacing or uh, the way it came about doing it sort of turned you off at at, at all? Yeah, um, I want I want to distinguish first and foremost between I didn't like this movie. And this is not a good movie because those okay. are two di- very different ideas. And this is a very good movie. This is a very well put together movie. It's brilliantly shot. There's a lot to love about it. And I think that we've had a really great conversation about it. That's enhanced my appreciation for it, but it's still a movie that I don't think that I would ever want to watch again. And partially, I think that's, that's just a personal preference. You know, I, I don't like it when stories are overly ambiguous or they ask you to bring in knowledge from outside of the story itself in order to really understand what it's saying. And this movie does both of those things. So on that level, it's not a film that I appreciated. Um, it's, I'll also just admit, as I said before, it's a very uncomfortable movie it does a lot to put you on edge and right here right now at this moment in my life and this moment in the world that's not necessarily (laughs) something that i want a lot of um but at the same time i will i will very readily admit it's a very well made film and i think one that people should watch for themselves if they have not seen it and appreciate it for its merits even if they don't like it in the way that I did not like it. So I guess that, that leads us to our, our big final question. Sure. Sure. That, uh, we're just running around the room now. Um, is the green Knight worth your time? Um, Tobiah. Yes. Hesitant. Yes, but yes. And yeah, I think you just said it. I mean, I'll say it was my favorite movie of last year and not everyone has the tastes that I have. And clearly you and I share Mike, um, I love movies that um, give you something unexpected, that there's a novelty. And what's fascinating about a movie like this that is sort of trading on 
a cultural, a, a somewhat cultural awareness in the West, in the sort of the Anglosphere, of the idea of King Arthur uh, and chivalric stories as tropes that we understand. Um, I did not know this this particular poem existed until I saw this movie. Um, but I love the idea that think about all the, t- the various times when we've seen a movie that involves King Arthur or especially the last one that was made, how often King Arthur movies are sort of sort of awful, um, especially for people who love fantasy movies. And I love fantasy movies, how I can appreciate Excalibur. But I also know how messy, how much of a mess Excalibur is for a movie. I appreciated that despite the fact that King Arthur is something that's known, how this story made a novel continuation or twist or spur from a deviation from that story. And uh, like there are elements that maybe you're, I'm certain that you're, that you're right Tobiah, when you say like this movie does ask that, you know, that you might need to take things from outside to appreciate it. Like I already talked about that moment of him, grabbing Excalibur and having this look on his face or there's a moment when the Green Knight comes into the hall and everyone is freaked out by what they're seeing. King Arthur looks to Merlin. They never say it's Merlin. Merlin closes his eyes and does some kind of incantation opens his eyes, looks back and shakes his head. Like there's a transaction that has happened between two characters that are extremely well known Mm -hmm. in throughout sort of Western culture um, that you would not have any idea of their significance, but you're just like, oh, well, Merlin, who's the guy who knows the most about wizardry, can't fucking do a thing to stop this from happening. You know, I love that the, a moment like that was packed into something that otherwise was, as you said, like this weird, 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 uncomfortable, crazy unfolding uh experience of which I didn't know where the fuck it was going to go. And then every time I see it unfolding, I just marvel at how it it all it doesn't look fakey it doesn't so much of it doesn't look like it's done in the green screen because it's clear that all, they they went to Ireland I think they did a lot of stuff where it made it look like it was in a real place instead of being made by digital artists um but I just it, it, just the package this the being more than the sum of its parts made makes it the kind of stuff that I just go crazy for. And if you're someone who wants to be surprised, although after this conversation, if you've listened to the whole thing, you're probably not going to be surprised by much. It's an amazing experience to let unfold uh and and experience. And I'll this... I'll just return very quickly to the yeah. comment that I made at the top. Can you truly spoil something that is centuries old? Yeah. I I don't doubt that someone on the internet will get mad about that. But <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Oh man, so, yeah. People get angry about all sorts of things that are decades old. But this was a passion project for for David Lowry, and it just it the first time maybe since the Lord of the Rings trilogy where it feels like it's a passion project for multiple people in the crew, the writers, the music, the the art design, the costuming, the sets. Uh, everything. It feels like everybody absolutely loves what they're doing and is getting to try something new and diving in. And there's a level of just detail that it just staggers me. This is a visual feast of a movie that has this incredible art design and feels so expensive but it's only 15 million dollars yeah it's really incredible what they were able to do but it's just as immersive 
Yeah. I mean, the fact that it, it is as visually immersive as something like Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, despite the fact that it's a very inexpensive movie, that they know how to use the sets that they have, that the special effects they have are, you know, maybe partially shielded by rain and mist and blurry in the background, that this stuff just looks spectacular. There's moments of pure awe. I love that visually there's this tension between the sort of pagan and Christian elements yeah. that not only do you see this sort of pagan god like Green Knight figure walk into the round table Great Hall holding a bough of holly on Christmas, <laughs> but there's just these pentacles and crosses all over right. everything. King Arthur and Queen Guinevere's <laughs> crowns have these like oh, those halos. Oh, wonderful. Oh, right. this, it's like this metal halo built into the crown that looks like old Catholic art that you would see on like a stained glass window. I think and those were inspired by South American designs. They do have that kind of look That's to it. so weird. It's so crazy. Um, you see like Merlin is very much a pagan figure. He has these sort of like runes tattooed under his eyes that there's this push and pull of just this chastity and piety butting up against this like sexuality and passion throughout the movie that you know oh my god it's just every part of this movie is just meticulous somebody loved making every single little piece of this movie the cgi fox looks incredible for a 15 million dollar budget um there's just a sense of awe like when the giants walk across the valley it isn't like you'd see with a lot of blockbusters where, you know, Sir Gawain, you know, running away from this giant hand swooping at him while CGI rocks crash around him and he's like Mario jumping. Um, <laughs> they don't notice him because realistically he's like an ant to them that it instead gives when, you this, When they speak, he can't even hear it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sense of awe because they would be, you know, so large that you're just under their notice. And there's this sense of feeling tiny, and it reminded me a lot of Blade Runner 2049, where mm. it's not afraid of silence. That uh, You mentioned the desolation, that like field outside of Camelot. It just feels so empty, but scary, and wet, and dangerous, and cold, and these people pulling down trees in this empty thing that used to be a forest, and... So much of this movie is just so lushly beautiful in the most terrifying way possible. Like, if you go camping here, you're dead. And <laughs> I love every single part of this movie. It's so unafraid of just letting you live in that. Like, with Ryan Gosling in his flying car and Blade Runner 2049, just rain hitting the windshield. It's like that, but it's Gawain on his horse. And maybe. And, and the movie resists what. Lord of the Rings did to big fantasy movies and other movies since then, it resists having a giant battle at the end. Yeah. I mean, that was, this is the thing that I was thinking about this movie was, um, oh, it's a fantasy movie. So there's going to be some kind of a huge battle at the end that needs to happen because now everything that's a fantasy story has to have, you know, the battle of the five armies or Helm's deep or whatever at the end. But the beauty of the $15 million budget is it affords it the, ability to be weird yeah it's not yeah. a four quadrant movie no. and it's definitely nope. not for everybody no i mean that's not for everybody in this conversation <laughs> so i mean well, and I, I will i will say that um i think it's great that 
people are still willing to make $15 million movies. One of the big problems I think with Hollywood today is that the movies cost so damn much. They're completely afraid to take any real risks. And this movie was small enough and cheap enough that they could take every risk. And yeah. that is yeah. rare to these days. Incredible music with like, lyrics in middle english i mean it's just yeah. the sort of thing that you don't do and i just i was fucking thrilled i love every part of this movie i love everybody in this movie my favorite movie of 2021 and i want to thank you guys for being a part of this conversation mr Tobias Panchin. thank you so much for joining us on this episode as always thank you for having me even when it's not something that i've enjoyed i always enjoy the conversation about it us and too. Absolutely. We enjoy having you. And and if there's anything that you're working on right now, any projects that you want to pitch? Uh, I am working on a project right now. Uh, it is not ready to be released. It's not really ready to be talked about. Um, but I'm going to pitch something that is vaguely related. Um, okay. So as I've mentioned before in the past, my father is a science fiction author. Um, he is currently recovering from a heart attack. And he and I have been working on... Uh, a new book of his for the past couple of years. Oh, and so nice. I'm going to pitch one of his old books because I think that his name is not as well remembered as it ought to be. Uh, so I'm going to recommend to everybody out there, the Nebula award-winning novel of 1968, Rite of Passage by Alexei Panshin. It's a science fiction story. It's a deeply anti-colonialist story. Um, and it is about a young woman growing up on a colony starship in a society that she has to grow to understand and maybe doesn't necessarily agree with. And I think there, there are a lot of things in our modern world that resonate with the story that people would appreciate. Absolutely. Nice. Everyone, please go check out that book. Congratulations on your new project, by the way. And let us know when that comes out because we'd like to check it out. Absolutely, I will do so. So thank you to Buy a Pension from the Dearly Missed View from the Gutters comic book podcast. We love having you on. And a special thank you to our episode sponsors. So a special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Zuri Russell, Don Tuvey, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Calzone, Kalen, Matt Weber, and Hans Twight. Thank you guys so much for joining thank us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, you can go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians, or go to the big green button on the bottom or right side of your screen, depending if you're on the phone or on your desktop, mm -hmm. and uh, join right there at radio versus the Martians.com. And otherwise, we will catch you all next month. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. 
And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. signs of fear when our positions were reversed. I'm not so confident, is he? You have had a year to find courage. When you were a hundred, it wouldn't make a difference. Give me a moment. Thank you.